Salutations, dear listeners. This is Kim C, and you're listening to the Year of Underrated Stephen King. This is a literary book podcast where I hope to use my English degree and dissect the underrated works of Stephen King, specifically those of the hard case crime variety. Greetings, dear listeners. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining me on an extra special, unexpected episode where we explore as our end of the summer book 2021's hard case crime novel, Later. I was equally surprised by this title, dear listeners. I was getting ready for the Green Mile. I have the copy on my nightstand. I was just about to get into it, and then I thought to myself, well, there's later, just beckoning me. Let's just crack open a couple pages and see what happens, and really, folks, that's all it took. I was instantly hooked. I was thoroughly grabbed by our narrator, Jamie Conklin, and the way this reads as so full of heart and narrative truth and coming of age, and there is a lot to love here, dear friends, and it's my first time read. It is a book that's really hot off the presses. This was released in March of 2021, and thanks Papa King for a second novel he gave us this year, which was Billy Summers that was recently released a few weeks ago at the beginning of August. I did get my hands on a copy. I didn't post a photo of it yet, so that might not mean it exists yet, but um, this is a super new title, which I hesitated on reading, but I adore the hard case crime novels. For those of you who've been listening to the podcast for a while, if you jump back to my 2005 episode, well, it's not an episode from 2005, but <laughs> it's exploring the uh, 2005 title, The Colorado Kid. Uh, that one was a ton of fun, and I discussed the story of how King found hard case crime and how the publishers got together and magic was made, but uh, Colorado Kid is an awesome short little book that I think needs more readership. It's definitely divisive in the King community. A lot of people just hated it. I think it was a little too ahead of its time. I think if it came out now, people would really give it some credit, especially because we really do live in a very popular time where unsolved mysteries are not a bad thing, and it we are just living in the age of armchair sleuths and detectives, and I think that the outcome of Colorado King would actually be something people would enjoy these days. So, uh, read Colorado, Colorado Kid, I think I said King earlier, read Colorado Kid if you haven't already, or jump back to my episode on that, and of course, one of my top five King titles is 2013's Joyland. Oh my goodness, it is really cemented in the top five, dear folks. I am a huge, huge, huge fan of that novel. It is everything. It is perfect. It's ghost story, love story, summer story, theme park, coming of age, reflection, loss, heartbreak, new love, 
mystery, uh, twist ending, detectives, friendship, um, oh my god, it's everything, it's everything, friends, so if you've read Joyland and you might not have got all of that in your reading, please, please, please give it a second read, and hopefully my episode on Joyland will perhaps assist you in a reread or reading it for the first time because I absolutely love it so so much. Ergo, as uh, we're kind of heading into the fall season here, not necessarily weather-wise of course, but I am starting a new class. It definitely feels like the end of summer, getting ready for the first day of school, and I think later was the perfect sweet little book. Not that it's a sweet story, it's a horror story. More on that in a bit. But this was the perfect book to cap off summer before I start uh, a new term with my students. And it's also an amazing book to get you in the Halloween spirit, dear friends. So if you are looking for a book that has ghosty ghostness all over it, later is for you. If you are a reader who enjoys King's old school stuff, his old school output such as Salem's Lot, The Shining, and specifically if you're a fan of 1986's It, I highly recommend Later because there was a lot of reference to it. We're going to talk more about that here in the next couple sections, but this is a wonderful pre-Halloween book. It is a, a much more graphic than I thought in terms of ghosty, creepy post-life descriptions, the descriptions of the dead, and I was super happy to kind of see in this story a lot more of King's personal lore. So more on that in the next section, but one of my big sort of qualms or complaints about my previous episodes of the Tommyknockers was that I felt we were really lacking in some King lore of who he wanted these aliens to be. Aliens are, of course, the epicenter of the Tommyknockers novel, and he tells us what they look like, but he doesn't exactly kind of tell us who they are or what they do. I was really hungry for more of that. And so with later, we really get King's sort of definitive stamp on what he feels the dead are all about uh, in terms of how our main narrator, Jamie, interacts with them. So in this episode, we are going to kind of do a traditional analysis for Tommyknockers. That one was a very unique book, so we kind of hopscotched all over the place. But this is going to be more traditional, where we're going to start off introducing the book. We're going to segue into what was really strong. We have a lot of strength in this story, dear friends. I loved it very much. There was a lot of beautiful storytelling, really good writing. He has a short amount. He, this is a smaller tale. It's under 250 pages. So having a, a much more condensed space, he really amps up the character development, the heart very quickly. So we're going to talk about that in our episode uh, or our portion of the episode where we talk about 
uh, strengths and what was really working in this novel. Then we'll transition to some characters. We've got some good ones. We have a very cool array of characters who over the passing of time definitely reveal their true colors. So very cool storytelling going on with some of our characters. So more on that section. And then we'll conclude kind of looking at the areas where I wanted some more, where I had some questions. Ultimately, it's really me wanting more. I'm an extremely greedy, voracious, hard case crime fan, so I always want more. They're never long enough for me. Um, and especially with Later. Uh, Later was uh, an extra special, delicious slice of King Dessert. I was wanting more. I definitely wanted a second helping. So we'll talk more about that as well as show updates, stuff coming down the pipe, questions, etc. So that'll be what we explore in this episode. So for those of you who have are really new to the King world, I'm actually going to have you pump the brakes on reading later. So this was kind of an interesting thing, an interesting um, moment for me when I was reading later for the first time. It is such an accessible, fast-paced, story. You can absolutely blast through it in a few days, in a few hours, really. It, it could really be accomplished on a short plane ride uh, if you're super into it, which I was. Um, but I was, as I was dipping my toe in, really getting into the meat of the story, a thought occurred where, you know, I think this would be a wonderful first title for a new King reader. Then, as I got deeper into the story, I shook my head on that and changed my mind and was like, actually, no. Um, if you're a new King reader, although the the shortness, the accessibility, the charm of this story is very appealing, this is for the fans. Uh, definitely. Uh, folks, I would definitely like to hear more of your thoughts on later, but I'm under the opinion, because there is so many King-isms, King characters, King moments, references to other novels, I feel it might be lost on our reader a little bit. Um, I also feel sort of the main villain is only going to make an impact if you've read 1986's It. Um, it, of course, is one of King's most popular works. It's one of his most prolific. It's got uh, one of the best characters of all time. That is Bill Denbro. That is Kim C's favorite Stephen King character. It is the most wonderful novel. If you haven't read it, I highly recommend. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a time commitment. It's a labor of love. I took about a month to read it uh, one summer very long ago and was a different person after I finished it was a game changer for me or me, dear folks. It really solidified my love for King. It absolutely was the nail in the coffin of me being a huge fan forevermore. I, of course, had my heart initially melted slash incinerated when I first read the powerhouse novella collection of Full Dark No Stars. That one was the one, the 
the start of it all and then I kind of you know uh, jumped here and there throughout the King catalog making my way through his work after that was Pet Cemetery, which <laughs> I remember when I was first reading Pet Cemetery, I thought to myself you know everyone says King is scary but I don't I think it's fine this is fine and then of course when I got to the end I almost left my bed full of urine completely almost peed myself I got so scared on that one so uh, yeah made my journey through King's works over the last 10 almost 10 years of, of reading King not a big dent at all. I think I'm about halfway through of his catalog. I've got maybe high 30s, maybe almost 40 in my count. So I'm still making my way through uh, his vast array of titles. So this one is definitely for the fans. Um, we have a huge portion that's focused on the Roanoke colony in Virginia as well as the Croton or Croaton. So it's my understanding this is a storyline that's heavily, it's a mysterious kind of story where the village of Roanoke disappears and is never heard from again, like they just up and vanish from this colony in Virginia, which I believe is in, um, gosh, you know, 16th, 17th century. Um, yeah, so I don't know of any other King works that this is featured in aside from uh, Storm of the Century, which I did an episode back uh, a couple months back, Storm of the Century, oh my god guys, such a tremendous miniseries that came out in 1999. It premiered on ABC and rave reviews, King wrote the teleplay, a lot of constant readers and collectors have the teleplay, it is a wonderful script and it's a tremendous story about a small town America, Little Towel Island is featured, it's so, 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 so good, tremendous villain, I love it, so jump back to my episode on Storm of the Century if you haven't heard that. Um, I believe in the Stand mini-series that came out last year, we do have kind of a mention of... I might be super wrong on that, so please forgive me if I'm missing the boat, but basically in later there's a lot of fan service, specifically the uh, village of Roanoke and the mysterious markings on a tree that says Croaton, and so I only know it inside Storm of the Century. But if it is featured in other King novels or other King stories, please reach out to me immediately, guys, so I can correct this error. I don't have all the King titles under my belt, so there's a huge margin for error there. I, there's a lot of blank space that I could be missing out on. But um, there's just a lot of, of King connections in this story. Uh, and I feel, especially if you haven't read it or if it's been a really long time since you've read it, a reread of it would be extremely beneficial. So if it's been a minute, I recommend rereading it, or if you're pretty familiar with the story, you can maybe uh, skim around, jump around between past and present Losers Club, and uh, or if you want to jump back to the final hundred pages when the adult Losers Club is in the sewers, I think that would be a good revisit for, for everybody, just to kind of remember what it was that the Losers Club as adults encountered basically the true form or the true incarnation of Pennywise the Clown. It is explored in great detail and 
I actually think now that I read later, I would like to reread it and revisit that content to uh, make sure I'm solid on it. But there's a lot of focus from the novel It. We've got a lot of Salem's Lot. So if you are a constant reader, if you are a fan of those aforementioned titles, please give this one a go. Oh my goodness, good buddies. We This is a delight. It's sweet, quick, engaging, warm, little creepy, definitely heavy on the ghosty, which is a perfect gothic vibe to get you ready for Halloween. There is a lot working in this short little story. It does take place in modern day or within the last decade or so, so uh, we are dealing with a little bit of the past and a lot of the future, which is so nice. And uh, there's a lot of King lore, which I'm so excited to talk with you about in the next section. But let's start with a brief sub summary as uh, we close here. Jamie Conklin is a young boy living with his single mother, Tia Conklin, in Manhattan when the reader learns that Jamie is no ordinary little boy. He's able or able to see and speak to the dead from a young age, Jamie and his mother, with the addition of his mother's love interest, NYPD detective Liz are trying to build a stable life for Jamie despite losing all their money in the 2008 housing crash. Jamie recalls his journey to the reader of growing up with this dark gift and how it provided a meetup with one of the most sinister king villains on the page. So I know that's a little vague. It's intentionally vague. Um, definitely read the dust cover if you want of a, a more concrete um, introduction, but we're gonna stay vague and then kind of blow it all up in the sections to come. So just a warning, this is gonna contain spoilers. This is a short novel. It's very easy to just <laughs> go there. Um, I'll do my best to dance around direct spoilers, but I feel I fail at that quite a bit. So just a heads up, it would be so much better for you if you have recently read or listened to later, uh, as I don't wanna ruin anything for you, but if you're okay with it, no worries stick around um, make sure you're familiar with it and Salem's lot and a couple other King novels throughout will be mentioned um, I'm hoping that you are familiar with those titles because I would hate to ruin other King works in addition to this King work with spoilers everywhere so just a heads up uh, there will be spoilers I'm gonna do my best but just a heads up so coming up uh, let's get our Let's get our metro card, let's get on the subway, head into the city, and make our way into our first section where we're going to explore the strengths of 2021's later.
Dearest listeners, welcome to the section of the episode where we're going to explore what makes the short novel later such a little triumph. It is quite delightful and I've got some things I'd like to share with you. So we're going to kick it off with my first point, which is narrative structure. Oh gosh, all of it is a delight, my good friends. Um, Oh my gosh. So firstly, our narrator is young Jamie Conklin. And for my constant readers out there, I hope you're thinking of a different Jamie as I was Jamie Morton in 2014's Revival. Oh my god. I adore that character. I adore that novel. If you haven't read it, I highly recommend. I think it's in my top 10 king. It is a force. Oh my gosh, a wonderful, powerful book in which our main character is Jamie Morton. Here we have Jamie Conklin. I know that we see recurring first names in King's work all over the place, but it's still awesome and it makes me think of other tremendous characters. But uh, we have the POV of young Jamie and this entire narration is just a direct address to the reader. Jamie is writing, uh, it, it, it doesn't seem epistolary, but it's very much kind of like a journal entry, a personal biography, and he is addressing the reader like a friend. Just, we are directly singled out, and it creates for an instant personal connection, um, which is so magic. And I think that's why it is such a strong tale that's tremendously short. Like, we don't really have a lot uh, of runway here, and yet still we've got a lot of strength. There's also a lot of flashbacks within this narration. We have adult Jamie talking about his early days with this gift and what it really is and how it's kind of crappy. But the novel has some really power-packed short little chapters, really, really short, a page and a half, two pages, sometimes three, but mostly uh, one to two pages, quick pacing, very subtle hooks all over the place. It's easy to keep reading and reading, which is kind of the nature of hard case crime. They're supposed to be kind of poppy and pulpy and short and fast and punchy and Uh, I think this kind of follows that formula in a really cool way. So I found a chapter that I really liked and I want to share it with you guys. This is just a tiny little snippet. This is on, this is chapter 20, which in my paperback is the bottom of page 94. I didn't see Leah's Dutton for a long time after that, a year or maybe a little more. I missed her at first, but that didn't last long. When the feeling came, I just reminded myself she screwed my mom over, and big time. I kept waiting for mom to have another sleepover friend, but she didn't, like ever. I asked her once, and she said, once burned, twice shy. We're okay, and that's the important thing. And we were. 
thanks to Regis Thomas, 27 weeks on the New York Times bestseller list, and a couple new clients, one of them discovered by Barbara Means, who was by then a full-time and actually ended up getting her name on the door in 2017, the agency was back on a firm footing. Uncle Harry returned to the care home in Bayonne, some same facility, new management, which wasn't great, but better than it had been. Mom was no longer cross in the morning, and she'd got some new clothes. Have to, she told me once that year. I've lost 15 pounds of wine weight. I was in middle school by then, which sucked in some respects, was okay in others, and came with one excellent perk. Student athletes with no class during the last period of the day could go to the gym, the art room, the music room, or sign out. I only played JV basketball and the season was over, but I still qualified. Some days I checked out the art room because this foxy chick named Marie O'Malley occasionally hung out there. If she wasn't working on one of her watercolors, I just went home. Walked if it was nice, on my own it should go without saying. Took the bus if it was nasty. On the day Liz Dutton came back into my life, I didn't even bother looking for Marie because I'd gotten a new Xbox for my birthday and I wanted to hit it. I was all the way down the walk and shouldering my backpack, no more one-armed tote for me, sixth grade was in the prehistoric past when she called to me. Hey champ, what's the haps, Bambino? She was leaning against her personal she was leaning against her personal, legs crossed at the ankles, wearing jeans and a low-cut blouse. It was a blazer over the blouse instead of a parka, but it still had the NYPD on the breast, and she flapped it open in the old way to show me her shoulder holster. Only this time, it wasn't empty. Hi, Liz, I mumbled. I looked down at my shoes and made a right turn onto the street. Hold on, I need to talk to you. I stopped, but I didn't turn back to her like she was Medusa, and one look at her snaky head would turn me to stone. I don't think I should. Mom would be mad. She doesn't need to know. Turn around, Jamie. Please. Looking at nothing but your back is just about killing me. She sounded like she really felt bad, and that made me feel bad. I turned around. The blazer was closed again, but I could see the bulge of her gun just the same. I want you to take a ride with me. Not a good idea, I said. I was thinking of this girl named Ramona Scheinberg. She was in a couple of my classes at the beginning of the year, but then she was gone, and my friend Scott Abramowitz told me her father snatched her during her custody suit and took her to some place where she was. In the, there was no extradition. Scott said he hoped it was at least a place with palm trees. I need what you can do, champ, she said. I really do. I didn't reply to that, but she must have seen I was wavering because she gave me a smile. It was a nice one that lit up those gray eyes of hers. They weren't a bit sleety that day. Maybe it will come to nothing, but I want to try. I want you to try. Try what? She didn't answer. Not then. Just held out a hand to me. I helped your mother when Regis Thomas died. Won't you help me now? Technically, I was the one who helped my mother that day. Liz just gave us a quick ride up to Sprainbook Parkway, but she had stopped to buy me a Whopper when Mom just wanted to push on, and she gave me the rest of her Coke when my mouth was so dry from talking. So I got in the car. I didn't feel good about it, but I did it. Adults have power, especially when they beg, and that's what Liz was doing. I asked Liz where we were going, and she said Central Park to start with, 
maybe a couple of other places after that. I said if I didn't get home by five, mom would be worried. Liz told me she'd try to get back before then, but this was very important. That's when she told me what it was about. Oh my goodness. Oh, boys and girls. I love that. Uh, I just thought that was a lovely little chapter to highlight this oh, charming coming of age, detail soaked, yet it flows so quick. The pacing is on point. There's just charm. Oh my gosh. I, I just love what he does. That was two and a half pages. It's Oh, it's just so alive. I, I really love it. So the narration, the structure, the snippet little chapters, the little one-offs, I just love what he does in the short amount of space. These digestible little fragments that you could have a tiny bite of or you can just binge the whole thing. So it's such a delightful little book and when you go, when you really zero in on the shortness of a chapter and what he packs into just two and a half pages, it's a little magic. So I'm such a fan of the narration. I'm such a fan of how close I feel to Jamie, how I'm really walking alongside him and he does that with the richness of his memories of, of talking about these moments that were very definitive at these, this time in his life when the specific ghosts were quite powerful. Uh, certain ones were stronger than others, let's say. Um, so that's going to be one of the biggest things I like about later is narrative structure and of course our narrator. He is such a delight. Uh, so number two, this one's got a couple sub points to it, but this is the area of the novel that I really, really love and it could be from the fact that uh, I just finished reading The Tommyknockers and one of the big reasons, I hope I didn't mention this in the intro already, please forgive me if I'm repeating myself, but Tommyknockers, I can't get it out of my mind in terms of, you know, it's a bad king book, it's bad in terms of bloated and sloppy, which I explore in my episode on the Tommyknockers, but uh, we don't get a lot of good, solid, foundational description of these aliens. And I was a little sore about that, a little surly, but what I love with this is characteristics of the dead is my next point. I feel King does a huge service to the reader by giving us some strong bricks to stand on in terms of, all right, this is his lore, this is what he's working with. So the first characteristic of the dead I want to explore with you guys is the first one, frozen in gore. So channeling the horror uh, in this novel, which he does pretty throughout, with King's dead people in this story, rather than allowing them to be healed up and whole, which we have in a lot of movies, for example, uh, my Harry Potter fans out there, fans of the film, when Harry is struck by Voldemort's wand, Harry is kind of in this The King's Cross station. It's kind of like a go-between between, uh, from Earth to 
beyond. And if you notice, Harry Potter is no longer wearing his glasses, right? So there's like total body healing going on. He's got no marks, no scars. Um, he's like a complete whole version of himself, which we actually see explored in film quite a bit. The dead are not afflicted by what caused them to die, but in King's work, channeling the horror as our narrator Jamie Conklin reminds us frequently, this is a horror story. He has the dead frozen in gore, so the way they died is how they appear to Jamie, and there's a lot of graphic post-mortem recollections from our poor narrator. And not only is it frightening for the reader, but it's actually really sad for the reader to realize, to recall how young Jamie is, how young and vulnerable. He's such a small person, and he has to kind of see these people in this frozen moment of carnage, whether uh, they were in a terrible accident that mangled them, uh, a self-inflicted gunshot wound. Uh, we we. We have some really graphic post-death moments, and in King's story, they are frozen that way. And so I really liked that he, from moment one, was like, I wrote some rules, dear reader. I wrote some rules, and here are the rules for my dead people. When you see them, they're going to freak you out because they look exactly as they do at the moment of death, which is creepy. So uh, yeah, horror fans, I, I feel this ticks the box a little bit. I was definitely like, ooh! Um, and when this is made, not if, but when this is made into a television adaptation or a film, oh my god, we're gonna get some. <laughs> we're, the makeup's gonna be in full force. Ooh. Um, so number, my second sort of subheading underneath the category of characteristics of the dead, we have they can only speak the truth. And this is a part of the lore that I absolutely love, love, loved with all my heart. Um, King has his dead folks compelled to reveal nothing but the truth out of their mouths. And guys, this is so genius. It's just, it's really quite prolific because in death, there is no more pretending, right? Like that's all gone. There's no need for it anymore. It's just pure, unadulterated truth. And so I love that these dead people have to, like they're compelled, they have no choice but to tell the truth. Um, and it really makes for an awesome, effective storytelling uh, sort of device to to play around with because it impacts the plot in such a strong way. The dead are compelled to speak the truth. They release a lot of important information uh, to our narrator, Jamie, and it really propels the story. It really gets the wheels moving faster. It was very, very cool. So I love that detail that when Jamie speaks to the dead, when he asks them a question, it is 100% the truth. And that's, it's such a powerful concept. It's such a powerful concept to, to realize that anything you wanted to know of a dead person, like, it's the truth. It's just, I don't know. I know that seems kind of, but when you really dig into it, when you really spend some time with it, it's, it's pretty cool. So, uh, only speaking the truth. 
Um, and then my last one is temporary presence. So in addition to frozen in gore, they can only speak the truth, these dead people start to fade pretty quickly. Our narrator Jamie describes this by saying their voices went lower or barely audible in volume. And so I like that King has his dead people uh, fade pretty quickly in terms of they're almost like a temporary echo. Uh, Jamie shouldn't be seeing them, but he is, and they grow fainter and fainter toward the unknown, of course, except for one person more on that guy later but uh jamie says they hang around for a few days uh we as the readers see them pop up at their funerals they linger around the place they died at and usually according to jamie not more than a few days later they're gone they vanish and they don't come back uh but even after a few minutes after they've been recently killed uh, Jamie talks about how their voice is harder to hear and they start to fade. Um, and there's a, still a lot of mystery as they head into the deeper realms of death. We don't know where they go. They're just totally gone. And uh, there's, I love this. I just love that uh, Jamie, we have these three huge characteristics of these dead people. It's unique. Um, it's, it's layered, um, but I think it just adds, it adds depth. They're not just a dead person, um, with uh, open wounds, you know, there's, there's some extra stuff there. So characteristics of the dead, super all about it. And these morsels work so well in this draft, guys. I think I'm just so happy for the specifics coming from the Tommyknockers where I was craving, craving, craving specifics. Tell me anything about these aliens aside from the fact that they're violent and tall and skinny. Like, that's all. I just wanted more, 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 more. And I'm happy that King plays around and we get some specific world building, his specific lore in regards to how he's viewing the dead in this uh, quite creepy horror-filled story. But then, yet, there's still a lot of mystery. A lot of mystery for Jamie to work out for himself, not knowing where they go. Uh, but these three aspects of death make for a very rich telling. So my last little bullet point that I want to share with everybody, of course, is one that I've mentioned before. I think I talk a lot about this in the Bizarre of Bad Dreams episode, but it's the trope of the older mentor. So we have this yet again in this novel, and I love it. I always love it. It's so, so good. So King does a really wonderful job with, uh, if you guys have read his previous works, it's present in a lot of short stories. Um, he presents a young male character, typically, receiving guidance and help from a wise senior citizen. Um, Mr. Harrigan's Phone, which was in last year's novella collection of If It Bleeds, that was my favorite one of that collection. It's all about an older mentor. So good. It's all over the Bazaar of Bad Dreams, which I love. Um, but I think we see it more and more as King ages, um, as 
It's, it's hefty in the short story collection I mentioned. It's also really heavy in Hearts in Atlantis. I absolutely love that collection, specifically Lone Men in Yellow Coats. We have another older mentor in the form of his wonderfulness, Ted Brodigan, who is a wonderful senior citizen character in the world of King. If you're interested in it, check it out. It's wonderful. But uh, I love that we have it yet again. In later, we have the character of Mr. Burkett, who is Jamie's older neighbor. And we see Mr. Burkett very early on in the novel. He's one of the first characters we meet. Uh, aside from Jamie and his mom, Tia, they live in a very fancy schmancy uh, high rise in Manhattan. And Mr. Burkett is a professor at Columbia, I believe. Um, he's just a brilliant man and little Jamie is able to see his recently deceased wife and so Mr. Burkett is the one who kind of sees that or rather Jamie feels comfortable enough to reveal his secret to Mr. Burkett who is an academic who perhaps he felt wouldn't judge him. My other hypothesis on this as we see this trope in more and more King works uh, for you biographers out there Mr. King it's pretty it's pretty widely known that King did not grow up with a father. He had a single mom and he never really knew his father. But what he did know about his father is that he was kind of a fan of pulp fiction, horror fiction, um, but uh, he never really got a relationship with the guy. And so I'm kind of wondering if this is, I mean, we can always wonder, we can always speculate, but I wonder if it's kind of like a deep psychological projection of maybe wanting to be a father figure to his young characters, to be the wise old mentor, to help them perhaps in a way that he was never helped, and granted I'm going down a rabbit hole, but I just love this trope in King's work, and Mr. Burkett is a lovely character. He's incredibly smart, well-read, and he helps Jamie immensely. Jamie uh, really is in a pickle when he kind of breaks down to Mr. Burkett, who listens to him, doesn't think he's crazy, has so much evidence to believe this young man and helps him out of a jam or helps him kind of get through it. Um, and of course, they, they never last as long as we want them to, but the old mentor is such a lovely part to this book. So I have some other areas that I'll discuss kind of toward the end of this episode that I extra, extra loved, but to recap, I adore the narrative structure, the way that we have short little punchy chapters with quick pacing and yet a very warm hook toward the reader. Uh, I feel Jamie kind of grabs us, he makes us listen from moment one, uh, just with his nonchalant direct quote. So yeah, I can see the dead, I think is one of the quotes of how he addresses the reader. It's charming, it's full of just heartfelt realness. I like him instantly. Um, I love the POV. I, I love it all. I love that it's kind of like a flashback. I love that the word later is kind of um, 
a charming little reoccurring scheme that we see throughout where he says more on that later later on of course it's it's just so full of charm so narrative structure uh, number two characteristics of the dead we have three of them one is frozen in gore what you get is what you get pretty gnarly number two they can only speak the truth I love this so good so rich and powerful in storytelling and number three temporary presence they don't hang out for very long into the mysterious unknown they go and lastly the older mentor I love it I love that mr. Burkett was a mentor to Jamie in his hour of need I love the older mentor relationship it's really prevalent throughout King's work especially these this last decade of his work which I've read the most of I think we really see it quite a bit King is in his 70s now so I think it's just you know something that's reoccurring I adore it it's so good but that's all I have for right now uh, tune into the last part of the episode I might have a couple more but thank you so much for checking out this section of what I really loved about later we uh, missed our subway stop so let's keep on rolling let's head uptown let's make our way to our character analysis section I'll see you there Hello, hello, sweet ones. Welcome to the character analysis section of 2021's Later. Let's get into it. Let's uh, make our way up to these city streets. Let's get some pizza. Let's uh, hang out with Jamie Conklin and a couple other fun folks as we talk about some of the people in this novel that I felt were very strong. So kicking us off, our first hero of the heroes, villains, and honorable mentions we're going to be exploring in this section. I have as my first hero Professor Marty Burkett. So I did mention him in the previous section. He is a part of the novel that I really, really enjoy. I love the trope of the senior citizen mentor and the young mentee. Um, this is a reoccurring uh, pattern that we're seeing in King's work. If you enjoy it as much as I do, jump back to last year's novella collection, If It Bleeds. There's a tremendous little story that kicks off that set of novellas called Mr. Harrigan's Phone. Super great. And then The Bizarre of Bad Dreams has some awesome features of an older mentor and a young mentee, typically older man, younger male. I know that that's always a little bit like, yikes, pedo, pedo, <laughs> however you want to pronounce it. Um, but King handles it beautifully. It's never gross. It's never inappropriate. It's always, he even jokes about it. I believe in Mr. Harrigan's phone, I think with, um, Craig, I think is the young boy in Mr. Harrigan's phone. His dad's like, is he 
is, what is Mr. Harrigan, is he like, is he normal? Is he doing anything to you? So it's ha it's handled in a really great way and it's touching and warm, familial, encouraging. And Professor Marty Burkett is, I believe in his 80s, he is Jamie's neighbor. And we meet him very early on in the story as Jamie, as a young little guy, I think he's around kindergarten, sees uh, Professor Burkett's recently deceased wife, Mona. Uh, she's standing right next to him, and that's where we kind of learn as the reader that Jamie is a very, very special little boy. But what I love about Professor Marty is he is a great listener, and Jamie is someone who gets a lot on his plate very early on. He can't tell his mom about this ability. She knows, but not to the depths that... The things that this poor boy sees, these dead people in the grotesque moments, frozen all over them of their deaths, it's pretty graphic and terrifying. And this is... Uh, call it a gift. I call it an affliction. Bless him. But Marty Burkett listens to Jamie, uh, pours some tea, and tries to help him get out of a sticky spot that he gets in. Uh, more on that in a little bit. But I think Professor Marty Burkett is indeed a hero in this story. He helps our protagonist, Jamie, deal with his dark gift. He provides a little bit of relief. He is kind of funny and unique. And you know I love my Stephen King Senior Citizens. He is a gem. We don't have too many good one-liners. Uh, King makes him pretty subtle, makes him more of an academic. Um, but he's classic and lovely and a very sweet person in Jamie's life. I wish we had more of him on the page, but uh, I'm going to talk about in our following section. One of the things I really enjoy about this book is the secrets. Everybody has secrets and King reveals them in a very cool way. On to our next character. This is a villain. Uh, now, I wanted to call her maybe a hero villain, but then I scratched the hero at the, the last minute. She's a villain, and that is detective slash former detective Liz Dutton. So we meet Liz in the early years of Jamie's recollection. This novel is sort of like a... A biographical account of his adolescence to the reader and Liz Dutton is the NYPD detective that is dating his mom Tia for several years. Jamie has a lot of warm memories with Liz. She was friendly and lovely based on descriptions and yet we as the reader come to find out Without revealing too much of plot, let's just say uh, Liz Dutton quickly succumbs to that thin line between cops and criminals. Uh, that is something that if you notice in fiction, especially television, probably because it's really there in real life, um, the line between those who catch bad guys and become bad guys, uh, yeah, that's a very thin string. And uh, Liz got caught up in it, 
and she kind of has a info dump in a taxi ride toward the latter end of the novel with Jamie where she kind of reveals her descent. I'm not sure how I feel about info dumps, but I think it works in this one. Uh, the plot really starts to move quickly at that point. So there's a pretty big info dump, and it's been a couple years, and let's just say Liz Dutton has transformed quite a bit. Um, but I like this lady uh, as a villain because she's cunning, calculating, and manipulative. This is a street smart, street tough lady who got into the scene of for financial gain, the scene meaning, of course, narcotics. She, you know, was busting the bad guys who did it, and then, of course, it's a slippery slope, and she started to get involved. Maybe uh, did not take the advice of our legendary Scarface gangster Tony Montana and was getting high off her own supply. That's uh, that's that's where it starts to unravel for our friend Liz Dutton. So. I really like her a lot as a villain. She's got some nice moments with Tia and what I also enjoy about Liz is she's the most layered character we have in later. I think everybody else kind of gets the, the, um, it's a little bit not as developed through the eyes of Jamie. So we've got his mom, we've got a couple other people, and Jamie just kind of sees them as a young growing boy would observe them, but Liz gets the most attention and transformation. Jamie recalls how she was sweet and lovely and would play with him and would care about him, and yet she's also the person that starts to exploit Jamie's gift. We have a couple really cool scenes where Liz shows up and makes Jamie work for her against his will, and it's intense, it's dramatic, um, but at one of the occasions, the reader is still trusting Liz. We have no reason not to. So she is the most layered, the most complex, and we really see her unravel and understand to a degree why what's happened to her has happened, etc. Um, but she is, without revealing too much, I know I kind of did already with the drug stuff, but yeah, she's a dirty cop. and. Uh, it, it unravels quite quickly uh, through Jamie's recollection, especially um, once his, his mom really kind of shows her strength, ends their relationship, and then the years are not kind to Liz. Um, she's pretty intense at the end, and uh, I really enjoyed seeing her complexity. She is the most complex in this story. So if you, uh, I really think that Later is one of those that you could definitely read again. Um, it's a really good book to uh, blast through just to find the end and get there really quickly. And it's also a really good one to skip back and return to certain scenes. This is a very enjoyable uh, read. Of course it is. It's a hard case crime. It's uh, really working in a lot of ways. More on that in the next section. But Liz Dutton, the villain, 
complex, interesting. She is a, a lesbian character, more on that coming up toward the end of this section, um, but I really like the complexity that King gives her. She didn't start out a villain, but became one through personal choices and the cruel hand of fate, which we see in King's work quite a bit. And in this case, that cruel hand is of course the 2008 housing collapse, the recession, when everybody, especially fat cats on Wall Street, lost quite a bit. And uh, it was a ripple effect toward high society, specifically New York City high society. So more on that in a little bit, but let's jump to the ultimate villain. Liz was kind of half normie, half villain, and this guy, super duper villain, and that is our main bad guy, Kenneth. Terrio, aka Thumper, who is a serial Unabomber in the New York City, in the tri-state area, I believe is how they refer to it. He is incredibly reminiscent of real-life Unabomber Ted Kaczynski, so if you guys are true crime fans and uh, you you know your bad guys, the, the real one, Unabomber Ted Kaczynski, very similar to this guy, Kenneth Terrio aka Thumper, who has murdered many over a series of years with random bombings. And Jamie, of course, is forced by Liz, this is one of those moments I mentioned earlier, to ask the recently deceased body or persona, not persona, but uh, basically Ken Terrio's ghost, uh, where the last bomb is, and it's a wonderful, really cool plot twist, it's really good, uh, definitely amps up the drama, but, uh, Ken Terrio is quite frightening, um, King reminds us via Jamie Conklin throughout this story, it's a horror story, and he definitely is right about that, he does not relent on the horror horrifying imagery and Ken Terrio is super gross and he's gross the whole time uh, without revealing too many descriptions about his person let's just say it's very violent and poor Jamie um, gets haunted he definitely starts to see more of Ken Terrio than he wants in places he does not want to see him and that's where the narrative really opens up and connects to the fans, definitely connects to constant readers when we realize that there's much more to Ken Terrio's ghost than Jamie was expecting. So um, this guy is very similar to Ted Kaczynski, which I liked if you if you kind of have studied your, your past bad guys, it's pretty rewarding. Just like uh, if you jump back to Full Dark No Stars, the, sh the novella A Good Marriage, the bad guy in that one, the husband, is uh, a stand-in for real-life serial killer Dennis Rader and his wife. So um, if you uh, didn't know that Steve did that and uh, kind of mirrored real-life bad guys, he does, and it's very effective. So I really liked this, this villain, Ken Terrio, um, as he pops up throughout the story. 
So our next uh, character is our honorable mention, and that's Jamie's mom, Tia Conklin. I gave her an honorable mention because I think there was a lot of cool stuff there, but King really leaves her underdeveloped. She is definitely just a mom, um, and I'm, I'm really serious about that, which I'm sad to say I, I would have liked a little bit more because she's a little mysterious, Miss Tia Conklin. What we do know about her is not as much as I would like. We know she's a literary agent. She uh, does some pretty desperate and uh, not exactly, well, it is illegal, I think. Um, let's just say she engages in blatant forgery to keep the lights on. Um, Tia lost a lot in the 2008 crash and was used to living a very lavish, posh New York City um, Park Avenue lifestyle. And when that started to dissolve out from under her, she, yeah, she started to feel the pinch and made some choices that would definitely put her and Jamie in a precarious spot down the road, but she has some talents that are interesting to me. Um, also, her sexual identity is kind of interesting because I don't know for sure if she is bisexual with Liz or if she is in fact a lesbian or it doesn't really matter, but I'm just curious. I want more. So I didn't know if she of course, the reader does find out a lot about um, the, the person in her life that allowed for the creation of Jamie to be made, but yeah, I'm kind of wondering if that is her preference, is to be with women. Um, it seems that once her relationship with Liz dissolves, there really isn't any other romantic involvement after that. So it's, I was, I was just wanting a little bit more from Tia, more, um, more of her as an adult and less of, uh, Jamie's mom. However, I understand that that would completely negate our narration that we've got going on right now and it's through the eyes of Jamie. All of this is from our precious, very touching narrator, Jamie Conklin, as he goes from age 5 to 23, I believe. So it's it feels very natural that Jamie doesn't really view his mom as anything but his mom, so we're probably not going to get the juicy details that I want. But Tia is underdeveloped. Um, I wanted much, much more. The parts that I loved the most is when she was making bad choices on behalf of her and Jamie's well fair, but also her involvement with Liz. It was a sort of passionate relationship, but it was also a kind of negatively codependent one. Uh, she and Liz were getting pretty wasted every night with bottles of wine uh, clogging up the kitchen trash can, to which Jamie has some serious trauma. He talks about the scent of wine um, is a huge triggering thing for him because he kind of recalls his mom and Liz in this consistent um, daily binge drinking haze for a number of years during his youth. So some really great details there, but I was hungry for more regarding Tia. And then our last character, of course, as I've mentioned, our star, our hero, Jamie Conklin, the sweet, precious angel. My guys, I love him so much. He is the most 
delightful narrator. He is charming, but understated. He's entertaining. He's just like a sweet baby precious angel. I don't, I know that that's like overly cutesy, but he's very engaging and you care for him immediately. Uh, I love seeing the world through his eyes because he invites the reader to feel this terror that he feels, but yeah, he's so brave. He's so brave in the midst of these ghosts, in the midst of seeing things he doesn't want to see, being places he doesn't want to be, and he's brave and he does the right thing and he asks them these questions. He tries to help. And as we mentioned in the first section, one of the strongest things we have with this novel is King did give us some lore here. These ghosts, they have to tell the truth. They have to, they have to. And so when Jamie asks them, he just learns a lot more than he wants to, a lot more than his little eyes and mind probably should. And what that does to a young person, I cannot imagine this burden that he has to deal with, but I absolutely love, love, love the character of Jamie Conklin, and I like that he's our narrator. At first, when I was making my way through the story, I was analyzing it a little bit, and I was like, you know, I wonder if, um, if maybe this story would have been stronger if Jamie was not our narrator and if we just did an omniscient third person and it wasn't as close to Jamie and then it was just, you know, a whatever, whatever. But he became so charming to me um, and it reminded me of our precious narrator in Joyland and I loved how the f story flowed so well through his eyes. I was like, no, this is such a personal thing. His experience with these ghosts, his experience as an adolescent and growing up with this gift slash burden, I'm like, no, I, I think it's working. I think it's working. I really like Jamie. So uh, my my sort of hope, this will kind of lead us into the next section, um, where this story ends, guys, is uh, leaving me a little hungry for more, and I think uh, this kid, Mr. Jamie Conklin, is ripe for a sequel. We must see him in a secondary work. I think that would be tremendous, and I think this is my this is my little fantasy. I've been doing a lot of that lately, just um, trying to edit and add. I want Jamie to meet or track down Bill Denbro. I want them to meet up, and I want like an adult losers club, not necessarily a reunion, because I don't think that is possible, judging by the way the novel It concluded, if you guys remember those final moments. However, I want Bill Denbro, I, of course I do, he's my favorite character in all of Steve's world, but I want like a Losers Club reunion with Jamie because I think that they are more connected than we realize. So. Uh, yeah, those are my uh, characters that I really enjoyed. To recap, we have number one, hero professor Marty Burkett, young Jamie Conklin's next door neighbor. Number two, our sort of hero slash villain, mostly villain, Liz Dutton. She is the romantic interest with Jamie's mom, Tia. Uh, she's a dirty cop who 
tries to do the right thing, but the right thing is really just to protect her own, um, took us there, her own ass. So, uh, second is our villain, 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 in all caps, Kenneth Terrio, aka Thumper, who is the serial Unabomber, super duper reminiscent of real life Unabomber, Ted Kaczynski. Number four, we have honorable mention, Tia Conklin, Jamie's mom, literary agent, and ghostwriter. And I really wanted more on her. She was pretty cool. And lastly, number five, we have our hero and narrator, Jamie Conklin, who we meet as a five-year-old and bounce around adolescence until we get to his mid-20s. And yeah, we're just getting started with, with this kid. He is so great, and he's got a lot on his shoulders when this story concludes, and I think he needs some help to deal with this gift. I think he's ripe for a sequel. So that will conclude our character section. Let's keep uh, bouncing around these streets. Let's head into the gift shop. I think we might need to uh, have a nightcap somewhere. So let's meet in the final section where I'm going to talk about my final thoughts of later, some ideas, what was really working, what I want more of, and questions I have. I'll see you there. Thank you so much for joining me on this exploration of 2021's Later. This is a hard case crime horror book. This is such a wonderful sandwich between the two. I think it's totally working in both the crime arena as well as the horror arena. But this section is just going to be my final thoughts. We're going to wrap up some dangling tendrils of the previous sections as well as discuss uh, a couple things as we conclude this exploration of this short. It's too short, I think. I always want more. Um, but really lovely story that's totally great for Halloween. Um, so overall, uh, I think I've definitely echoed this in all the sections, but I really enjoyed later, dear friends. I really did. I always want more with Hard Case Crime, and with this novel especially, I could have gone another 200 pages easily. However, uh, when I stepped back after I finished reading it and kind of relived the last couple pages a couple more times, I am okay with the length and I, I'm okay with it. I accept it. It's, it's, um, bittersweet because I do want more. I really think this would make a tremendous sequel, as I mentioned previously. Uh, we need more. I need more of Jamie into adulthood. I also need him to meet with somebody from the Losers Club. Of course I want it to be Bill, but I don't care who it is. I really think that he needs to meet with Mike Hanlon or somebody because, okay, because, yeah, like, this is very connected to it, as I mentioned previously, dear friends, and this is something that I 
because it is so connected to the novel It for many reasons, we have, of course, the um, mention of lots of things throughout that novel that make it totally integral to having read It first. Um, It's the reason why, unfortunately, I can't recommend this to first-time keen readers. And I was very sad about that because I think Hard Case Crime are lovely little morsels or samples of King's work for new readers and I was like oh this will be so fun this will be such a great read for uh, new King readers and then once I got into it I was like nope we can't we can't we can't and uh, this is because a lot of what happens toward the latter half of it especially in the final hundred pages let's just say um, You'd have to be living under a rock if you don't know who Pennywise the Clown is. We all know who he is, right? However, readers of the novel, you also know how deep that rabbit hole goes, how deep those sewers go. Um, It gets very uh, expanded, let's just say, in terms of what the actual entity of Pennywise underneath the clown makeup what that is. It's very rich, it's very deep, and King brings that back here. And it really is for readers of the novel It. So if you haven't read It and you want to love this book, I have a feeling there's going to be a couple little roadblocks that are preventing you from doing that, especially because it 100% brings up a huge chapter from the novel It called The Ritual of Chewed. And it is chewed and not chud, my guys, because there is an umlaut. So German readers, I believe this is correct, but the umlaut, the two dots over the U, makes ooh. You have to do like the a long U sound. So, I mean, my German is crap. My German is scheisse, but uh, I'm pretty sure that that's legit. That's how we get the word uba, but I don't know if uba has an umlaut over it. Um, please forgive me if I am incorrect on this, but I think it's chewed and I'm going to call it chewed and not chud because of the umlaut. So, but, um, the ritual of chewed, uh, listeners, that is a huge chapter in the novel It. It's brought back here for good reason as Jamie definitely needs it to survive to the next phase of the novel. Um, but it also, I think creates more problems than he wanted. Um, It's something that maybe could have been better for him had he had a group of friends around him to help because that's how it works in the sewers of Derry with the Losers Club and the Ritual of Chewed. But uh, yeah, guys, that's mentioned. And so if you haven't read the novel It, that's, that's not gonna be something that gels well for you. So The other thing that's mentioned, of course, we go back to Marston House, knock knock on Salem's Lot. So if you haven't read Salem's Lot, that's going to go over your head. It doesn't need to be read, of course, like that's, but you're going to enjoy it so much more if you've had a couple more uh, moments with King and uh, hopscotching around his work, especially some of his more mainstream titles. I think that that would be wise. Um, So the other thing that um, after I finished reading this, or really as I was reading it, 
I uh, really, really thought if you jump back to my episode on favorite films, Ghosts Edition, of one of my all-time favorite ghost films, and that is 1999's The Sixth Sense. So if you guys enjoyed later and you haven't seen The Sixth Sense, we need to do that. Or this is even better, if you haven't yet read later, let's watch The Sixth Sense first, and then I would like you to pick this up and read it because, oh my gosh, guys, if you are a Gen Zer and you have not watched The Sixth Sense, holy crap. Okay, so the similar, the reason why I bring it up is because the similarities between this novel and the film are huge. Uh, let's just say they're very close together. Um, so The Sixth Sense is about a young boy named Cole, and this young boy is brilliantly played by, oh my god, I think he was like 11 years old at the time, uh, uh, this precious actor named Haley Joel Osment. He plays young Cole, uh, living with his single mom in Philadelphia, masterfully portrayed by Tony Collette. So we've got that uh, urban setting, single mom, young boy with the gift of seeing dead people. Gift slash curse. Um, I love this movie so much. It's one of my all-time favorite ghost films, so jump back to that episode to hear me gush about it a little bit more, but uh, it's fan-freaking-tastic. The script is glorious, and it made writer-director M. Night Shyamalan a huge star. Huge! Like, oh man, this guy was a blazing star after this film, and I believe after The Sixth Sense, his script for Unbreakable went for a million dollars, which was very unheard of at that time. So uh, The Sixth Sense will warm up your gears for a novel about a single mom in the city with her young son who has this ability. So I don't know if King just watched it recently or just had this idea for a long time, but there are some delicate little tendrils that I think are really connected to the 1999 film. So if once more, if you've recently read later, definitely do yourself a favor and watch the film if you haven't seen it. Uh, relish and observe the glorious tightness of the script and all the beautiful visualizations as well as the representation of red in the film. It is beautiful. It's so special. It's the best ghost movie, one of them. My top ghost films ever. It's magic. Um, and that's why I love Later so much is because uh, I really get that uh, film vibe in this story only, um, which brings me to my next point. I think that Later is a little bit more kind to our single mom and young boy affluence-wise um, when it comes to their sort of socioeconomic status, they're faring much better than Cole and his mom in The Sixth Sense. Um, so this one, I also feel that this story later is kind of King channeling a little bit of a Dickensian vibe as well. For those of you who read Dickens or you've read maybe one or two in school, whether it was um, Great Expectations or Oliver Twist, basically uh, when it comes to Dickens, everything is about money. Everything. Every novel he has is about money, people not having money, dying in the streets, rotting away in debtor's prison, 
and then eventually getting money and a lot of it and life is better and so that's pretty much Dickens in a nutshell um, for any of you Brits please take no offense if, I, if that is too um, uh, too uh, abbreviated of, uh, of a Dickens exploration but uh, Britlet is not one of my strengths ergo tangent over I feel that King is channeling Dickens a little bit. We have Tia and Jamie at the mercy of economic collapse. They were living the high life, high on the hog, as they say, up in Park Avenue, uh, a silver spoon in Jamie's mouth for sure, private school, and then all of a sudden, there's desperation. However, it doesn't get super bad. Thankfully, King does not take them into the streets. We didn't have to go full-on crime and punishment. We didn't go super-duper Dostoevsky, and we are <laughs> selling our bodies for bread or <laughs> something terrible like uh, the cold Russian novels uh, sometimes do. So we didn't get super-duper down on our luck. Tia was okay, but she did make some desperate slightly unwise choices um, that got Jamie in quite a pickle later on. Uh, she definitely commits a crime due to a lack of money. And I, I like that. I like that we see crime in this novel in multiple ways um, that especially in the white collar arena. We have blue collar crime, desperate people represented by Liz, uh, Liz Dutton, who's just um, a working cop, did not come from money, and we sort of see the decisions that she made in her life. And then we have people like Tia and Jamie, who are very affluent at the start of the novel, and that when they lose that money, specifically when Tia loses that money, the desperation creates a feverish desire to stay afloat, but to also get back into the sunlight, that glimmering place that she knows uh, due to her affluent past and connections in the industry. So um, I liked that quite a bit, and I think King's really saying something about, uh, yeah, not exactly poverty, but when the chips are down watch people become strangers to themselves or watch them make these poor choices. So I really love the thread of, of a Dickens nod in here of what happens when money is lost and what people will do to get it, to keep it. Um, it was pretty cool and I think Tia's character, that's where we see her shine the brightest. Um, but overall, this uh, plot device in the novel was very cool, very, very nice, and especially that it's in New York City, uh, I like that quite a bit because in a snap you're either on top or you're, you're on the bottom, and I love that that was explored here in, in this novel. King illustrates how the loss of money or financial the loss of money and financial gain um, just causes immense ruin and stress and unraveling, and we get to see that in the story. So um, I really loved that part, really, really enjoyed that aspect of the novel. So my uh, last sort of point 
Um, if you liked Later and you haven't or it's been a while, I also really love the bond that's explored between Jamie and his mom, Tia. It's reminiscent of another single mom, uh, only child, Wendy and Danny Torrance. So the bond, of course, between Wendy and Danny, um, starring in the novels The Shining and in Doctor Sleep, Wendy and Danny are definitely closer than Tia and Jamie, mostly due to the intense trauma that Wendy and Danny faced at the hands of the abusive, psychotic, uh, alcoholic rage machine known as Jack Torrance. So Wendy and Danny have a really beautiful relationship, a very special bond, and I feel like Tia and Wendy could have really had a nice lunch or two together, um, given the fact that they want to understand what their sons see, and but they really can't. However, I felt that Wendy's, like, Wendy's love for Danny was definitely, like, level 10, because I felt like they really were all each other had, whereas Tia's got her own life. Tia's, she's, she's an independent lady. She loves being Jamie's mom, I think, but she's also a high society gal, tremendously educated. She has a good job, um, and she's got romance in her life and intrigue, and she's got her own set of problems, but Wendy lived and breathed for Danny. She definitely did, and I think Tia is uh, balancing a lot. She's got a lot of spinning plates, including motherhood, uh, but motherhood isn't all she has. So I really thought in this tale, I couldn't help but conjure um, Wendy and Danny when exploring Tia and Jamie inside this book. So it definitely made me want to explore The Shining a little bit, at least skim a couple passages, because I love that book so much. It's iconic. There's nothing like it but it's, it scares me. It, it is an old story, and yet it still wrecks me. Um, but uh, if you haven't read 2014's Doctor Sleep, which is a sequel to The Shining, um, specifically Danny Torrance's continuation story, it is beautiful. It is really wild, um, but the focus on Danny in that book is is reason alone to pick it up. It's pretty magical and wonderful, and um, you kind of understand uh, how devastated Wendy and Danny are even years and years and years after what happened to them, so it's kind of a sad story, definitely tragic one. Um, but overall, I this book really drummed up a lot for me, guys. It's, it's like just a little over 200 pages, but it really packs a punch. We have beautiful narration. We've got crime and horror, which is a super delectable combo. I hope King does more with that. Um, but to recap, do not read this, guys, if you have not read the novel It at all. Um, so if you've never read it, please hold off on this book. If it's been a while, I think you should give the last couple chapters or like the last hundred pages at least the Ritual of Chewed. You need to go back to that inside the novel It. Uh, let's refresh. Let's refresh with the novel It. Head back to 1986. Head back to the Dairy Sewers. 
uh, brush up a little bit and then jump over to later because I would love to recommend this to first time King readers but I cannot due to the fact that there is fan service everywhere. There is constant reader stuff everywhere and there is past references to King's former novels all over the damn place. It's wonderful if you're a constant reader. It is such a treat. It's just like little morsels, little candy drops uh, everywhere where you can just pick up a shiny little wrapper just for you. So I love, love, love that. But for a new King reader, I recommend you start with Joyland. Please head right over to 2013's Joyland. Pick that up today and read it because it's perfect. Um, or if you want some fun, if you want some investigative detective-y fun, um, pick up The Colorado Kid, which is super duper short. You could read it in an hour or two. If you're just waiting for your car to get an oil change, you could finish up The Colorado Kid and have some fun with that. Um, but yeah, I have a dozen other <laughs> King novels I would rather you read if you're a first-time King reader. Um, but after you either brush up with it, please, please, please watch the tremendously spooky and genius 1999 film The Sixth Sense, starring Haley Joel Osment and Tony Collette, directed by M. Night Shyamalan. Oh my god, it's the best ghost movie. Um, it's one of them. It's my top five. I adore it. And if you haven't seen it, oh my god. First of all, don't look anything up. Do not look anything up. Don't. Just, just, just either download it or stream it, hit play, watch it. Make sure it's dark, get your popcorn, have your snacks, and have a blanket to wrap around your face when it gets scary, because that's how I do it with scary movies. Um, so, uh, watch it. It is genius, and I really feel that seeing the young boy Cole, uh, will warm you up to Jamie's narrative, as well as this environment of the single mom, the gifted son, the city streets, the urban setting. It's very, very reminiscent of later in a way that just thrilled my heart because I really like this book and I really love that movie. And uh, once more, later is the perfect book for early Halloween, my guys. Oh my goodness. This is creepy. It is uh, graphic imagery, violent. Um, we do have some pretty uh, cringe-worthy violent scenes in terms of like, whoa. And of course, King's description is dead on. Um, if you are struggling with addiction or if you're a substance uh, survivor, if you are a survivor in any kind, uh, of any kind, please tread carefully. There might be some triggering content in here. It's, it's gritty. It's in your face. Uh, and young Jamie is a vulnerable boy through much of it, having to experience quite a bit of creepy stuff that he cannot control. And thankfully, he has some people in his life who look out for him, both living and dead, thank goodness. Um, but yeah, this novel ends absolutely leaving me wanting more. We need a sequel because I'm a little worried about Mr. Jamie, my friends. I'm very concerned for him. Um, especially after this ritual of chewed. I think that Jamie doesn't know what he's got uh, stuck to the bottom of his shoe, metaphorically speaking. I am very 
concerned for him. So uh, this kid is ripe for a sequel. I think I would like to read about him maybe uh, getting a little romance in his life. Um, I am definitely wanting more from him. And I, I he needs to meet somebody from the Losers Club, guys. Of course, Richie Tozier, always welcome. I want him to meet Richie. I really, really want him to meet Bill, but of course, that's me. Um, but I, this kid's ready for a sequel. So I'm so glad I read this. It was a perfect little book to say farewell to summer, say farewell to uh, vacation season, vacation in quotes, because it's 2021. Nobody's really on vacation, right? So, um, <laughs> but uh, I'm starting off the school year now. I'm getting back to the books, getting back to my students. So later was a really lovely book to do that with. So I am headed into um, some, uh, yeah, some prison corridors, I think. I think I'm headed towards the Green Mile, and we're going to explore it in the six novella installments, so more on that later, but that's going to conclude my coverage for later. If I forgot anything, or if there's something that you noticed in the novel that you would like to share, please, please, please reach out to me at underratedsk at gmail. I would love to hear from you listeners wherever you are in this little blue marble we're living on. Uh, let me know uh, how you how you uh, found us and what you like about the show and any topics you would like more information about. If you want to talk more about these books, things you noticed, give me direct page numbers, quotes. Uh, I'm an academic through and through, so I would love to analyze some of the text with you. If you would like to do that, um, jump back to past episodes. They're always open. Underrated King titles are always open for review and further commentary. So please read out as soon as you can to say hello and if you would be so kind head over to apple podcasts and give the show a five star and if you have uh if you've been uh, practicing your lovely comments you can say something nice about the show and we would love 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 you forever but that's gonna be uh, that's gonna be it let's head back and let's head home let's Let's uh, say goodnight to the city. Let's say goodnight to the ghosts who are lingering only for a moment until they disappear into the great beyond, the great unknown, hopefully a lot better than this place. But thank you guys so much for listening. I'm looking forward to hearing from everybody. Please say hello. Thank you from the bottom of my heart for listening. If you made it this far, bless you, bless you, bless you. I wish I could hug everybody, but um yeah take care until next time i'll see you all very very soon bye bye